life of fulfillment starts with understanding your values. And when you know what truly motivates you, you can accomplish extraordinary things. Welcome to the Discover Your Values podcast, where each week we hear unique perspectives on human values with leaders who inspire us to explore the depth of our potential. Now, here's your host, Jacob J. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to welcome Phil Cook as our special guest today. Phil is an internationally known filmmaker, media consultant, and founder of Cook Pictures in Los Angeles. He's produced TV and film programming in more than 60 countries around the world. And in the process, he's been shot at, survived two military coups, fallen out of a helicopter, and in Africa, been threatened with prison. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I am thrilled to be here, Jacob. We're so glad to have you. So, Phil, I know today we brought you on because we're going to talk about something that you recently posted on Twitter about this intersection of personal values and organizational values in the workplace. But I want to go back to your bio for a little bit because there's a lot of exciting things that I actually read about you, and I want to talk about them some more. So you're sort of like a real-life MacGyver, so to speak. (laughs) I'm not quite as smart as him, but I usually get in the same You know, when I read your bio, some of your background, I see some things that are daring and exciting and varied, and it's all driven by purpose and cause. I find that probably underneath all of this for you is a tremendous amount of courage to do a lot of the things that you've done. And I'm curious, what for you was that moment in your life when you realized, you know, based on some of your values, that life would be anything but ordinary and routine for you, that life would be full of excitement and change and adventure and all of these things. It was probably a gradual change. I think uh, many times people don't have that one epiphany, that moment of revelation necessarily. Sometimes it kind of grows on you and things start pointing in one direction. I I was a piano major when I started college. My dad was a pastor in North Carolina back uh, years ago. And, um, you know, when you're a preacher's kid, you learn to play the piano. That's just part of the gig. I had no idea what I wanted to do in college, but I knew how to play the piano. So I enrolled in the music department. That is until I met the faculty and realized they were serious. So I started looking for ways to get out of that. And um, I had been making Super 8 movies with my dad's movie camera. This is how old I am. In high school, and I had a group of friends, and we made army movies and mafia movies and space movies and all kind of things. And Never thought I would do this for a living, and um, I went to college, thousand miles away from home, and I thought, you know, maybe I'll take my movies and my my dad's camera. Maybe I'll find some people in college that would like to do this. And the first day of class, I was unpacking, and a couple of my little films rolled out of the suitcase, and a guy across the hall said, "Hey, I'm taking a film class, and I can show you how to edit those those little movies." And I had no idea that you could actually cut film. So we went down to the film department that very night, and um, we're working on one of my little movies, and the professor happened to be there, and he was working on a project, and as he was leaving, he stopped by and just introduced himself and said, you know, I've been watching uh, your little film here, and if you don't mind, he said, I've got kids that have been taking my class for three years that don't do this well. Could I show it in my class tomorrow? And I said, well, if I could sit on the back row, sure. And so the next day I went to his class and he showed my little film. And believe me, it was nothing to scream about. But when they, when they turned off the projector, people started talking about it in the classroom. And this, this thought hit me. I don't know if I've had a, 
this crystal clear of a moment in my whole life before or since. But this, this thought hit me that if I can do something with a camera that makes people talk, this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. And I literally changed my major that day. I've never looked back. And, and where I focused, I don't mean to ramble here, but where I've kind of focused in my career is helping people tell their story. So we primarily focus on nonprofit organizations, a lot of Christian organizations, some churches, anybody that's trying to do some great work in the world. It may be building water wells in India. It may be building orphanages in Africa, doing medical outreaches in South America. And so to help tell their story, that means we go to some very difficult places. Uh, we've covered sex trafficking in Eastern Europe. So I get into trouble. I get into you know military coups sometimes. I fell out after trying to film a, a scene in Jamaica. They, they didn't have a, this was long ago, and they didn't have a helicopter really rigged to shoot. And so I talked the Red Stripe Beer Company into letting me borrow their, their helicopter for an hour. We literally tied me in with a rope, took the door off, had me sitting on the side of the helicopter, tied me in with a rope. I had a big camera. They were big back then. And as he took off, uh, none of us realized there was an extra loop in the rope, and I literally slid right out. And wow. uh, I was dangling by the rope and the pilot saw and kind of jerked left really hard, threw me back in. And, you know, it's moments like that that are terrifying at the moment, but they make great grandkid stories years, years later. Oh. So, yeah, it's kind of fun. So the bottom line is the kind of work we do is not necessarily, although I live and work in Hollywood, it's not necessarily big time Hollywood studio stuff. It's usually telling very difficult stories in very difficult places. And uh, that means sometimes things get a little bit exciting. <laughs> Yeah, I bet. As you look back on all of the experience that you've had and all of the things that you've done, and it really is extraordinary, what comes forward for you when you think about all of those experiences? Well, a lot of that it depends. You know, I, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm putting a blog post together right now. I write a lot on creativity and particularly leading creative teams. And I'm, I wrote part of a blog post yesterday about the fact that as I do look back over my career, I realize. I'm not necessarily a creative genius by any means, even though I've been involved in incredibly successful projects and projects that got an enormous amount of visibility, won awards. I don't really think of myself as any kind of creative you know, genius. I think the talent, looking back over my career, I think the talent I do have, though, is mobilizing incredibly talented people and helping them really go to the depths of what they're capable of. I've had the opportunity to work with some remarkably creative people. It's more like being a coach, I think. And, and how do you inspire your team to do remarkable things? And, and one of the things I think we need more of is people that are knowledgeable in how to lead creative people. There are some good leaders out there, but leading creative people is a little bit different animal. And that's probably what I look back on and, and think I, I've contributed to more than anything. That's a great segue into the next topic because you posted something on Twitter a few days ago that when I read it, I was like, I got to get in touch with this guy. And I see this comment pop up from time to time. And I'm always really interested in talking with other leaders on this particular issue. I want to read what Phil wrote on Twitter a few days ago. It reads, the role of a chief talent officer is no longer to blindly push through outdated HR policies. Instead, talent gurus must reinvent the company's policies to match the company's cultural values and employees' personal values. This struck me when I read it because I think we're living in a time right now where values are coming more and more forward for people, 
We're seeing them everywhere. We're seeing values-based investing, values-based shopping, values-based eating, values in healthcare, values at work. It seems to be people are really connecting with what's on the inside as they think about how they want to live their lives on the outside. And work is certainly no different. So I want to talk to you a little bit about this. When you wrote that on Twitter, why is this topic so important for you right now? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I work, I, I consult with a lot of organizations out there trying to help them tell their story. And one of the things that I find very, very often is they become slaves to, to very often outdated policies. And you, you know what I'm talking about. There's always a company that has a policy that nobody can figure out who invented it or why we have this policy. It's a stupid policy but we slavishly adhere to it, even though it may have been created because somebody did something really stupid and the CEO or some leader decided, okay, we're going to make a policy that so, so we never have that embarrassing situation again. And um, that person is long gone, but we still have the policy. And I think very often we just keep these policies hanging on, even though, and let me just say this, Jacob, we live in a period of the most radical change that's ever happened on the face of the earth. I mean, we live in the most distracted culture in the history of the world. The digital revolution is causing change to happen at such an incredible rate that we can't keep up. And yet, while we're trying to adapt to the changes in our culture, the changes in business, the changes in you know, the nonprofit world, while we're trying to adapt to those changes, we still find that organizational policies were built for 10 years ago or 50 years ago or more. And so I just think that when it comes to, if you're an HR officer, if you're a leader, if you're focused on helping get talent for your organization or your team, I just really believe that it's times, you know, we need to take a moment and look. It's not about fulfilling policies. It's about finding the right chemistry and the right team that will help move what we're doing forward. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, 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 totally. And when you think about some of these outdated policies or things that you'd like to see reinvented, is there anything that's top of mind or things that you've seen in some of the consulting work that you've done? Oh, oh boy, I, I, I've seen some. I'll give you a great. I'll give you a really good one. Um, uh, this may not have, it won't apply to many people, but I thought it was just outrageous. My, my wife and I went to Hawaii a couple of years ago to speak at a leadership conference, and. Uh, executives and marketplace leaders were coming in from all over the Pacific to meet in Hawaii for this big conference. And so we had gotten there early. We decided to go out and sit by the pool. And uh, so we went out by the pool at our hotel, and we're about the only ones out there. It was early in the day. And um, I noticed that all the chairs are on one side of the pool in the sun, and all the umbrellas are on the other side of the pool. And so I walked over, the, and I started rolling an umbrella so it could be over next to our chairs where we were. And of course, an employee of the hotel went running out on the pool and said, sir, I'm sorry, you can't do that. I said, well, why can't I do that? He said, well, I'm sorry, but it's not our policy. I said, well, wait a second. Aren't umbrellas for your chairs and your umbrellas are over yonder? The chairs are over here. And he said, yes, sir, I know. And I said, so that didn't work, right? He said, yes, sir, I know. But I'm sorry, it's, it's against our policy, so I can't have you do that. I, I, was, I, was just, I was so shocked. Sometimes you encounter things that are so incredibly stupid, you don't even know how to reply. So my wife went in and talked to the hotel manager, said the same thing. I'm sorry, but it's just our policy. And I said, well, you've ever thought about changing the policy? Well, sir, that's not my role. That's not my position. That seems extreme. It's such an example of things I find with airlines, I find with businesses, hiring policies, policies about paperwork and projects. I worked for a television station in Pittsburgh years ago, 
that uh, they had a policy that you had to fill out 14 different forms just for me to get a piece of videotape off the shelf. And I, I said, guys, what's the deal here? 14 forms. And yeah, I know, but that's our policy. And uh, I tell you, in many ways, Jacob, the computer is a big part of the problem today because what we have, uh, I'll give you a, my travel. I, I fly way more than most human beings. I'm on a plane just about once a week. You know, in the old days, I could sweet talk my way to first class. I could sweet talk our film equipment and gear, you know, on without extra charges. But now we've become slaves to the computer. So the person at the ticket counter, the person at the desk, is a slave to whatever the computer says. I'm sorry, sir, that's our policy. It's right here on the computer. And what we've done is we've lost the ability to think and adapt to certain situations. A great example is um, when your bag is overweight. You know, they make you take stuff out of that bag to put in your other bag. Well, both bags are going plain, right? Yeah, I know, but it's in our policy that one bag can't be over a certain weight. So anyway, I just, I don't mean to ramble, but the truth is there's so many policies that we have that are just holding us back from going out there and creating a ruckus and accomplishing something significant. Yeah. And I imagine it has to be pretty frustrating for employees too people on the front line who know that some of this stuff is ridiculous because these individuals, they have their own values. And we're going to talk about personal values in a minute, but I'd love to hear from you. How do you think cultural values are shifting in organizations today? And I'm specifically talking about the company because most companies have their own value statements. And that's another thing that I find in some of my own research that a lot of it was probably created a hundred years ago when the company was founded, but it really hasn't kept up with some of the time. So I'm curious what you've seen in, in some of the work that you're doing. Yeah, it's interesting that over the course of my career, I've seen such a radical change out there for the better in, in, in so many cases. You know, my father's generation, for instance, didn't have leadership experts like John Maxwell to read and study and talk about. We didn't have these kind of resources that we have now for how to shape a company. So in the old days, it was everybody had their little gray metal desk and everybody had their typewriter and their phone and, and it was just the way it was. Today, what we've seen is a much more relaxed atmosphere, even with investment companies or law firms that, you know, are normally pretty buttoned up. We're seeing a remarkable relaxation visibly just in, of the clothes we wear, of how we can do our office. Uh, I worked with one large nonprofit in the Midwest that once I crossed that hurdle with them and were able to say, look, you want to hire young, talented, brilliant people, but you're never going to do it if you make them wear a coat and tie every day and you make them you have the same exact cubicle. And we started ripping up carpet and redoing walls and redoing the lighting. And it just so energized the employees. They could create their own space. And suddenly the creativity coming out of this organization was just remarkable. So values do matter. And what you find is companies that, that appreciate and respect the values of an employee are companies that that, val that that employee is willing to trust and therefore dedicate a lot more focus, time, effort. They're not going to nitpick working overtime. They're not going to nitpick staying extra for projects. They're not going to nitpick different things. So I just find that you respect employees and more often than not, employees will respect you back as a company. And uh, that happens, that starts by really understanding what their values are. Let me just throw this in, Jacob. Chemistry, this all really comes down to chemistry. What we've discovered over the last 10, 20 years is the chemistry of a team is incredibly, incredibly important. For instance, when I started out, I hired people that, wanted, that were like me. 
I, you know, I hired people that were good at what I was good at, that liked what I liked, generally people that I'd want to go to dinner with or go hang out with. Then I realized, I realized, wait a minute, I'm just duplicating myself. How does that help? That's not helping us in areas that I'm not good at. And I started hiring people, being very intentional about hiring people that weren't necessarily good at what I'm good at, but they were brilliant at what I'm terrible at doing. They were brilliant at numbers and budgets and spreadsheets and details, scheduling, things that I'm not very strong at. And suddenly our productivity went through the roof and we started really um, doing higher quality work. So I, I really learned the hard way that chemistry is enormously important in putting the right team together. What do you make of how companies communicate their values today? Because I think a piece of that, when you think about chemistry, there's a number of ways we're finding if that exists or not. And a lot of that happens, as you say, in the interview, some of it in the assessments that you talk about. And most companies publish their values on their website. And that's one of the first ways that you can find out if a company is the right fit for you. But I find that all of this tends to be inconsistent and curious about your perspective. I think you're exactly right. You know, I'm not really a mission statement guy. I, I, you know, companies that have mission statements, nobody ever reads them. Uh, you know, if you talk to most people listening to this podcast right now, if you ask them, what's the mission statement of your company? I bet most of them couldn't even answer. And so I find mission statements are pretty useless. However, values really do matter. And people are more likely to attach themselves to company values. And like you say, you can put it on the website, you can put it on brochures, you can share it in social media. But I think something even more important is how it's shared from the leadership. I think sharing the values from the leadership, for instance, I mentioned the leadership expert, John Maxwell, a minute ago, John taught, taught me one important thing years ago, and that was what he calls walking through the factory. He just believes that every leader needs to get out of the office go out, walk through the factory, get to know your team, get to know people, even the guys at the loading dock or the girl at the reception desk or the guy at the reception desk or whoever, just walk through the factory and get to know people. And when you do that, you start sharing the values of the company, you start staring, sharing your personal values, and that's when it really starts connecting with people. When they see the leader or leaders start engaging personally with them and using that opportunity to share, here's what's important to me, here's what's important to the company, here's why I found the company, uh, founded the company years ago. Those times of sharing values, I, I find, are far more helpful and they're remembered for a lot longer than just putting them on the website or in a brochure or having them in other places or having them framed on the wall. Yeah. And what do you think in organizations, because some organizations are so large, and I've worked in a Fortune 100 myself, and have had these, you know, values and mission statements, you know, pushed out to me, you know, from leaders, to your earlier comment, a lot of that stuff just doesn't get read. It just sits there. I don't know that a lot of organizations have made the transition, one, from properly identifying their values for the 21st century, but two, getting them properly integrated among the leadership. And I'm wondering what you make of that. Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it is a leadership question, no, no doubt about it. One of the things we've seen with a lot of the big digital companies in Silicon Valley, like Facebook or like Google, is how often and how regularly their leaders have team meetings with the staff. And I mean, the, the, the big staff, not just small groups of people, which are important, but they also have big, big groups where they do Q&A, ask questions, get, let, the, let the people have a voice. But the employees have a voice. And I think being a leader is about being responsive to your team. And I don't mean just the five people that surround you or that you work with closely every day, but the entire team. 
And uh, you're right. You know, you may have you, you may be running GE that has sixty thousand employees worldwide, but as much as possible through uh, live face to face encounters, I say a leader should be exploiting those as much as he can. Now he can also do it through social media. That's one of the reasons I like when I, when I teach leaders about social media. I like it when they do it themselves. You know, certainly you can have a social media team at your office or at your company or your nonprofit. However, I think when a leader does his own social media or a certain amount of it, people can tell. People can tell that that's a genuine moment. And and I always encourage leaders that, you know, the single great, I I believe the single greatest reason people follow you on social media is because they want to know what it's like to be you. For instance, in your case, they want to know what it's like to to do a podcast that you're doing, Jacob. They want to know what it's like to teach values like you're doing. They want to know what it's like to do what you do. And so instead of just sharing motivational quotes and inspirational, you know, things from people and with kittens, I always encourage people, share your victories, share your failures, share your frustrations. Tell me what it's like to be the CEO or the marketing director or the social media director of an organization like yours. Because that's what will generate people. Uh, that's what will get people following you because they are curious and they really want to know. So the bottom line is if the bigger the company, the more important that is because you can't meet face to face with 30,000 employees or 60,000 employees or whatever. However, through social media, you can really share your personality, your values, your integrity. It's a powerful tool in today's leadership. Yeah, absolutely. So for the hiring manager that's listening to this podcast, and he or she may be interviewing an employee tomorrow or this week, when we talk about that chemistry and finding the right match, where the personal values and the organizational values come together in a way that's really special and benefits everybody involved, what comes forward for you when you think about what hiring managers should be looking for in those interview conversations? Well, I, I wrote a blog post at my, my blog at philcook.com, cook with an E, by the way, philcook.com recently about when you do hire people, the resume is important, no question. However, also the, te- the fit within your team is even more important. So I would turn down a brilliant person who is not great, a great fit for our team and take a much less qualified person who happened to be a great fit for our team. It's a lot like sports. I was watching the the New York Jets and the Cleveland Browns last night playing football, and Baker Mayfield was the rookie quarterback and stepped in at at the halftime mark. Tyrod Taylor got injured. And so just the way he stepped in and electrified that team, they were behind 14 to nothing. But when Baker Mayfield stepped in, everything changed. Just his mere presence on the field changed attitudes. People, I mean, the the audience lit up, the team rose to another level. And so I think as a leader, it's our job or a hiring manager or HR professional, it's our job to think, okay, what does our team need right now? And really focus on that as much as I do on people's resume. I mean, you know, obviously we need resumes. Uh, We also need bios. I love to hear a bio. We live in a storytelling culture. So I love, by the way, I'm throwing this in for free. Uh, I, uh, I love to have people submit a biography because uh, I want to hear, I want to sense their ability to tell a story. I, I think we live in that kind of a culture today, particularly I work in, in, in Los Angeles and Hollywood. And so I'm particularly fascinated by people's ability to tell a story. So bios, I think, are more important than ever. But the bottom line is, it's not just a resume anymore. It's their ability to fit in with a team, their ability of how is that chemistry going to work. I just think that's important. And, oh, 
of course, all that comes from values. I just think that we can't escape that. We kind of, you know, we want everything to be scientific. We want everything to be factual and objective. But the truth is, values are not necessarily factual and objective. Values are a little bit more spiritual. They're a little bit more uh, motivational. They're a little bit more, um, you just really can't evaluate them the same way you can evaluate a skill. I think We've come to a place in our culture very often where we're embarrassed to talk about values. But the truth is, I wrote a book a few years ago called One Big Thing, Discovering What You Were Born to Do. And I, I have a phrase in that book that values are your, your bumpers on the bowling alley of life. Your values are what's going to keep you grounded. They're going to keep you from cheating on your husband or your wife. They're going to keep you from stealing money from, from the company. They're going to keep you from you know doing that cheating on on that project you're working on. They're going to keep you from being bitter about someone at the office who may have gotten a promotion when you didn't. Values are what keep you really steady. And uh, you know that there's a phrase that integrity is what, what your life is like when nobody's looking. And I think values are a really, really important part of all that. What do you say to the employee? So let's flip it around rather than the employer but to the employee or potential job prospects that are listening to this right now who find it very easy to conform to social norms and take the job you know, with the most money. Because I find that in the workplace, for a lot of folks, people are not in tune with their personal values. They're in tune with what they think they should be doing. It creates this tension once they get the job. So what's the best advice you can offer to these individuals? I've certainly read research that indicates when uh, an employee is working at a company that shares their values, that respects their values, it's much more harmonious. It's much more of a joy to work. They accomplish more. I mean, there's definitely an upside to finding a situation where you're, you and the, the company are in sync when it comes to character and values, integrity, those kind of things. And so I, I, always, I always tell prospective employees, when they go to a job interview or they start talking to someone about a position, to think in terms of two things. Number one, skill. But there's certainly no substitute for doing your job well. Last night at the football game, I mentioned with the Browns and the Jets, part of Baker Mayfield's expertise was he can thread that ball into some remarkably difficult places. He's just an incredibly accurate passer. And so there's no substitute for that. I don't care how inspirational you are. If you can't do your job, you're not going to do it well. So number one, don't ever, um, I, I tell people coming to Hollywood all the time that when you come out here to be a filmmaker, lead with your talent, lead with your talent, because if people respect your ability to write or act or direct or produce, then they'll listen to anything you have to say. The second thing though, is be prepared to discuss values, because I think companies want, are curious. They want to know what you value, what you think highly of, what you're willing to work on, where you'd like to focus. And I certainly do when I'm hiring somebody because we work with so many nonprofit organizations and, and religious organizations, values become incredibly important to the people that I work with. I'm always curious about what people, what, what people pri prioritize, what they value over other things. That's incredibly important. So generally, it's a two-way street. Skills matter. But also, we should think in terms of values and, and because people really respect, you know, they'll respect you for your skill. Put it this way. I know a lot of people who are brilliant at what they do, but they're jerks. Nobody likes a, a brilliant jerk. And I don't know how, I don't care how great you are if you can't get along. In fact, I'll tell you something, Jacob, that you'll be interested in. And I read a survey just last year that indicated the, the biggest reason people were fired. I think it was like 87% of people that were fired last year in America 
weren't fired because they weren't good at their job, weren't fired because they weren't qualified, weren't fired because they didn't show up. 87% of the people fired last year lost their job because they couldn't get along with other people in the office. Think about that. They, they were good at what they did. They just couldn't get along with anybody and people want them around. I think that's just so incredibly important. Yeah. And I think you're onto something with that comment. And as I look back at my days in corporate America, when I look back at it, especially at high up leaders that were let go from the company, they were often just very difficult to work with. And so the company made a decision to let them go. Yeah. I worked with a company, a big nonprofit organization that's doing great work around the world just, just about a year ago. They brought in a guy who had been a, a big time executive in a major, major company business, really good at what he does. And he really felt like he wanted to spend the last decade or two of his career focusing in the nonprofit space. And so he's extraordinarily gifted executive, very talented. But after a year, he was let go. He was let go simply because he was driving everybody nuts. He just, he was just, he didn't have an accurate self-image of, of himself and how he was doing his job and how other people were relating to him. And as a result, the board had to let him go. And I thought it was so tragic because he was extremely good at what he did, but because he wasn't very self-aware, I think that's another big part of this conversation. It's just your ability to be aware of your own gifts and talents and how other people respond to you. That's an incredible part of the mix. But because he didn't have that, he was let go after a year. And so those issues are more important than most people think. Oh, they're huge. And I think in a lot of organizations, especially when you're dealing with the top brass, it's the emperor has no clothes phenomenon where people around them are aware of the issue. But to your point, the leader may not have enough self-awareness about it and may not be getting enough feedback about it until it's really too late. True. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. I want to talk about one leader right now that's in a lot of our current events, and that's Elon Musk. And again, we're having this conversation, not in a disparaging way, but one, you know, for the highest good of all concern. Elon has had a number of things over the last several weeks with just various meltdowns or slips in his speech and conversation. I think most notably was his recent New York Times interview. And it's clear to me from some of the comments that he may be struggling, one, you know, to keep himself accountable to his own values, if he even fully knows what all of those are, that would promote even greater growth for himself, for his business, for his employees. What do you do when you have leaders at the top who are really the biggest impediment to keeping a corporate value system well intact and healthy? Because I have no doubt that Elon is brilliant. I mean, he's got a lot of really innovative things that he's behind and he's been able to achieve. But if you look at what's going on with some of his latest comments, and if you go to Glassdoor.com and look at some of the employee reviews, and I've scoured through some of those, I've also looked at how employees are rating companies like Tesla. It's not very high. So there's something happening at the top that seems to be impeding some of the growth there. You're exactly right. It's funny that one of his areas of weakness is not that different from President Trump's. We probably should take away his Twitter account for one thing, because that's, that's caused his stock to go into a tailspin a couple of times, uh, just offhand comments like that. But you're exactly right. He is a brilliant guy. And I think very often he's juggling so many balls at such a high level. I mean, you're talking about building a space program. You're talking about boring underneath LA to put, you know, to create tunnels in, under LA for high speed transportation. You're talking about all kind of AI. He's into all kinds of things. I think a guy that operates at that level is naturally 
disconnected from most of the people he works with simply because most human beings simply don't operate at that level. And what, what I've discovered is leaders like that often need a counterpoint at their level who can help translate Elon into language people understand. One of the things that, that I find right now in the Me Too movement, and, and Elon has not been, to my knowledge, uh, accused of anything like that, but just as a parallel example, and this whole Me Too movement that kind of started in Hollywood and has gone into business and government and everything else, we're finding leaders that simply aren't accountable, finding leaders that didn't have anyone to say no. And I think very often when you reach a certain level in business or leadership, people start to feel like they can't make a mistake. They, they feel bulletproof. They feel like nobody's, you know, nobody's going to tell me no. And that's an incredibly dangerous place to be. I mean, when you look at Harvey Weinstein, the guy owned Hollywood. I mean, he was an incredibly influential leader in Hollywood. And then there have been, been others who have gone down since. And yet, even though with that kind of influence, he still had a weakness that no one was willing to confront him about, apparently. And so I think one of the things I always encourage leaders, you're never too big to be accountable to someone, whether it's a close friend, whether it's a member of the, the, your board of directors, another executive, people need to be able to tell you as a leader, hey, Bob, hey, Susan, hey, Jack, that's a really dumb idea. You, you really shouldn't do that and uh, not have to worry about them losing their job. And so a lot of situations with leaders like Musk, I think, come out of that sense of, you know, I don't want to say entitlement, but I say that they're just operating at this remarkably high level where very few people feel confident to say, ah, you know, that's not a good move. That's not a good statement. We shouldn't release that right now, or we should release this or something else. And so, and the other thing we see, we see with President Trump is you also see, because he came out of the business world, I think somebody who gets offended really easily, you know, and it's, and it's naturally a business thing to think if that guy wronged me, I'm going to crush him. And so you can't always do that in a political sense. You have to be much more discreet, particularly if you're trying to be a respected statesman. And yet he keeps getting caught up in petty, petty little things. And in fact, it's not unusual. I, I, I'm, I'm amazed at the number of high level executive executives with companies and in government across the board. It's remarkable how often they get caught up in something petty because they got offended, they got their feelings hurt. And by golly, they're not going to let that thing just, they're not going to let it go. And it often ends in their downfall. I don't know, if, Jacob. I don't know if I answered your question. I kind of rambled there. All those issues, I think, are so critical. Yeah, you're absolutely right. No, no, this is great. So, in the future, if we look forward as we continue to move into this movement towards living by our values and creating more awareness about our values, I believe that organizational values and personal values will make some progress in terms of their intersection and alignment between organization and, and individuals. What does the future look like for us in this type of environment? Well, sometimes I think it looks bleak because I think people generally are so fact-oriented, so scientifically oriented, and there's nothing wrong with science, don't get me wrong, but I think we do move into an area of scientism where we start worshiping that, and, and we don't think in terms of, of values and character and integrity. And I think that um, sometimes I despair, but I think overall I'm seeing people like you and I think uh, other leaders who are starting to catch on and understand the fact that when you inspire your team, they're going to do remarkable things. You know, I, I, I learned long ago, in fact, you know, there's a classic book called 
by Dale Carnegie called How to, F- How to Win Friends and Influence People. And um, it's, I think he wrote it in the 50s or 60s, but it's still so relevant because it's all about the fact that you can, you can order somebody to do something and they'll do it if they're your employee. However, let them think it's their idea. Inspire them. Give them some, some rope and give them a little creative freedom and they will knock themselves out to accomplish it. When you let your team inject their values and their priorities and what they love into doing a project, you're just going to see a remarkable difference in the way that project is carried out. So I, I see that more and more leaders are understanding that it's not about just telling employees to do something. It's not ha- about having a policy, it's not having rules. It's really about inspiring your people to go above and beyond and do remarkable things. In every case I've encountered that, people have they've come back with so much more than anyone expected, and it's been incredibly positive for the organization. Phil, this has been incredibly insightful. I have truly enjoyed our conversation today. Tell our listeners a little bit about how they can stay in touch with you and continue to follow the good work that you're doing. Well, I've, I've had a great time too, by the way. And if people would like to check me out, my blog is at philcook.com, P-H-I-L-C-O-O-K-E.com. As I mentioned, I'm Cook with an E. At Phil Cook is my Twitter handle. At Phil Cook is Instagram. I'm on Facebook. And I would just, you know, on my blog, I write about the intersection really of of kind of culture, media, faith, those kind of issues that are important to me. And so values are a big part of that. And I think if people are interested in looking at values and how they impact the workplace, I write a lot about that. So philcook.com would be the place to come. You can comment on my blogs. You can get in touch with me that way. And uh, I would love for people to go and go on Amazon and type my name in and my books will come up. And I'd be thrilled for people to go check those out. I'm just honored to be on the program. I think this is a great podcast. I love your focus and where you're going with it. I do think it's so very, very important. Thank you again, Phil. It's been a pleasure. And to all our listeners, make sure you check out Phil and we'll catch up with you next week for the next episode. Thank you, Phil. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Discover Your Values podcast. Are you ready to explore your values and create your best life? Visit discoveryourvalues.com and download our workbook to begin your journey.